You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to New Models and hello from the United States. On this episode, Carly and I are joined by a returning guest, longtime New Models friend Cade Diem, the Berlin-based founder of the research organization The New Design Congress. Earlier this month, Cade wrote and published the Parareal Manifesto, which maps and defines a term Cade calls the Parareal. Normally, we wouldn't record six hours before leaving for an international flight, but the Parareal Manifesto gives language to something important that is still difficult to describe. And we decided to invite Cade to share his thinking so we can carry the concept of the Parareal with us into the new year. Once you understand the Parareal, you will increasingly recognize it, whether in the societal phenomena that emerge from the blurring of the digital and the material, or in the Parareal moments that you experience yourself. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Kay Diem, here to talk about his essay, The Parareal Manifesto. Let's get into it. New models. So we're being joined by, I think we can say family of the pod, Kay Diem, who runs New Design Congress, and he's been a longtime part of the New Models community and Discord, and he runs his own platform as well, and often publishes these really beautiful pieces, but he recently, a few days ago, published something called the Parareal, a manifesto. This text gave language to something that I know at least Julian and I, and I'd say Dan too, we've been thinking about for months, if not years and just haven't found the right term for it. And this feels like a key, like a linguistic key to just describing like something, maybe even like a metaphysical shift that I think we've experienced. Yeah, I mean, I also think it reminded me a bit of Keller Easterling's medium design where it's a sort of naming and articulation of a space in between, a space of exchange. Right, so like Keller Easterling would talk about, say, like the intersection of a city, and whereas some people might talk about like the streets or the buildings on the corner, Keller would point to the street signs and the social signals and whether you jaywalk or don't jaywalk and what cars are double parked and just this like richness of information, this kind of intense zone of exchange which is hard to put your finger on, but is very, as she would say, data rich. The intersection defines a city as much as the buildings, right? And that's not the exact analogy she makes, but something approximate to that. And I think by talking about this space of the parareal, Kate's doing something similar with the physical to digital existences that that we have. Well, what happens when those two spaces are almost unconsciously aligned but we should let Kate yeah, probably define it. Exactly. Well, I wondered if there was a line <laughs> or two that you wanted to pull out to anchor this. So actually, Julian kind of put me on the spot about an hour ago, and it is a little bit esoteric in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of sentences, if you don't mind. The parareal is tied to the self, and it defies the cyberpunk claim of cyberspace ascent from the material bounds of embodiment and politic. The parareal revels in complexity, and its first-person perspective, no, first-person persona, dismantles the concept of user, a vulgar design-led carving of the individual into a platter of market incentives. Its central contradiction 
of transformative emotional potential and ephemerality makes it impossible to commodify. The parareal is beyond regimes of accountability. The parareal only exists in real time and it cannot be designed with, it cannot be cultivated, it cannot be minted, it cannot be open sourced, and it cannot be archived. It is not a set of design tools, nor an idea-esque framework deployed to create the artificial wilderness or digital platforms, let alone a rug, pool, pump and dump scheme. Mm -hmm. The parareal is not a protocol and it cannot be fetishized in a Docker container pokeball. The parareal is the purest embodiment of the medium is the message. I love that passage. It was the one that jumped out at me when reading this. I think especially this idea that it's not something that can be commodified. It's this thing that transpires. So it's like a byproduct of a set of conditions. There's been some kind of titration point where now we're in the parareal and it can't be designed in a Facebook metaverse way. And in fact, maybe that's a good place to start. We've for you know, a long time since the 90s or before had this term, the metaverse, which is referred to mm. a parallel life in digital space where we also exist with each other. Of course, that's been co-opted and we can maybe get into that a bit. Your text addresses it by Zuckerberg and by this very mids web two corporate web space. Could you maybe start with differentiating the parareal from the older concept of the metaverse? So it's more that the metaverse is an extension of the idea of cyberspace, which really becomes popular with John Parry Barlow's declaration of the independence of cyberspace back in 1996, 94, can't remember exactly when it was, but famously delivered and published at Davos. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of this was, it was a screed that I very much disagree with, which basically proclaims cyberspace as transcendent from the material bounds of the world and of politics that cyberspace exists beyond the reach of governments or things like that, and that it's like completely separated from the real world. So when we draw on that, with especially with the sort of sci-fi infused concepts that become the metaverse, what I'm sort of talking about here is less about a difference between terms and more about something that is a flaw in the concept of the metaverse itself, mm -hmm. which is the metaverse is just a fancy way of saying a platform with a 3D layer over the top of it or an immersive mm -hmm. layer over the top of it. And so really part of the broader work that the Parareal Manifesto is trying to do is to also kill off the concept of a metaverse as an intellectual concept or as something that we see as anything other than a shorthand for a platform. Mm. And the reason why the Parareal is so resonant now is not because it's relatively new. It's been with us since digitized society began as a concept but the difference is that as digitized society becomes more immersive, as we're bombarded with images, as it interweaves and entangles with us in our lives, the opportunities for a parallel moment to happen increase exponentially. Mm. And so it is possible, for example, in Facebook Horizons, it is possible to have a parallel experience. You can have a parallel experience in Instagram. And I use an example, a negative sort of violent example of a parallel experience through Instagram in the piece where we talk about how a person who gets doxxed through OS int analysis of their Instagram posts and then as they start receiving their home address and a whole bunch of hate messages and harassment, that precarity that, that the victim feels, the target feels in that moment is an example of parareal terror. And mm -hmm. that's possible through something like Instagram. 
Also, I think just this idea of like parasocial, I mean, this idea of there being a para-relationship, there's something that's in excess of just the individual, right? It's interesting that you bring up the parasocial. So if I can quote from the manifesto again, uh, the parareal is inherently participatory and interactive. In this sense, there is no such thing as a parareal film or miniseries. There are no passages or passivity in the parareal. A parasocial relationship between a live streamer and their audience is a visceral example of the parareal, but the parareal exists in the moment with the delusional audience member. It is not stored in the VODs of the streamer, nor built into the interface of the streaming platform itself. Right. So in a sense, what you've described there is correct, but it's important to note it's not necessarily a shared experience. It's very individual. It's very personal. It's specifically dealing with the moments in time where the atoms of digital world and the real world run in parallel and a third space emerges in that moment. I was also thinking, I mean, reading this, I've also kept thinking about quote-unquote terrorgram, which has been in the news a lot. What is this that, Julian? Sort of a synthesis of QAnon conspiracy, white nationalism, mm-hmm. and fash wave aesthetics, mm-hmm. but it's basically turbocharged right-wing extremism, mainly gathering around Telegram, where mm-hmm. they've sort of made a fortune-style digital culture around white supremacist, white nationalist terror. They would call, you know, shooters like Anders Breivik uh, or the Christchurch shooter saints. Uh And they would make these sort of well-designed like baseball cards of their kill count and their motive. But essentially you can imagine some disillusioned young man in these spaces and sort of forgetting who he is and suddenly embodying this world of this different rule set Mm -hmm. that's entirely just coming through text and images mostly on a tiny screen on Telegram. I mean, there was a shooting in Slovakia at a gay bar. Someone from Terragram murdered two people. They also are really focused on Invisible Committee style attacking of Mm. energy infrastructure and transportation infrastructure. And I don't remember what the outcome was, but there was attacks on the power grid in North Carolina recently. Not sure if that was tied to this, but Cade, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem like Terrorgram, say, is something that is trying to cultivate these parareal relationships with disgruntled, alienated young men. And in those parareal moments, they're really effective moments of indoctrination or changing the individual, changing how they think about themselves or how they see the world once they're offline. Yeah, so I'm so glad that you brought up examples that are negative because the parareal itself is not an aspirational space. It's a powerful tool that can be used or harnessed for political gain, absolutely, but also for like individual exploration. This is also, I think, picked up by the far right in the current kind of labeling of queer people as sicknesses on society by the far right. I mean, a great example of this would be the litter box rhetoric of, right. you know, kids in schools are using litter boxes because they're furries, blah, blah, like the far what? right. What? Oh, my God. Have you not heard? It? Okay, so no, this is a, this a thing, meme. But it's a meme and then, you know, parents show up at, like, school board open mic nights and they talk about how they're going to, like, fight back against the litter boxes and stuff like this. It's literally hate speech. Just to be clear, the litter box meme, for lack of a better term, is that some trolls online started to claim that classrooms and public schools were putting litter boxes in the classrooms for children who identified as cats to use. 
because they wouldn't yeah. use the human bathrooms. They identified as, as cats. Like some and so kind of transphobic the school was type putting, of thing. Yes, exactly. Kind of it's an anti-queer thing directed it, yeah. at furry, furry subculture, yeah, and trans subculture. I mean, the idea, like Kefals, for example, Kefals being a live streamer who took down kiwi farms and went up against Cloudflare and copped a whole intense amount of abuse from the far right. She ran a Discord called Catboy Ranch, which is very sort of irreverent queer space that was accused of being pedophilic wasn't, mm. but this whole idea of like, you know, linking these kinds of concepts together through memory and fabrication. Yeah. Right. I mean, just to be fair, because it's something that we've been thinking about a lot, especially in the wake of this whole Balenciaga like mayhem, I feel like this same phenomenon is in the right and in the left. So I think that this parareal, it has a way of flywheeling. But yeah, yeah I think absolutely though, so helpful the too. phenomenon that we're seeing with the parareal in progressive politics, I mean, we're talking about things that aren't material. Mm -hmm, we're exactly. talking about things that are politics of language, of categories. I mean, a lot of it feels detached from reality. And right. that phenomenon is not exclusive to the right. right. Of course, one side is killing people and one side isn't. But I don't know, ontologically, something similar is happening. Right. Julian, you used an example in the Discord where you mentioned two people looking at a photograph from the Balenciaga campaign and one of them immediately seeing codified child abuse. Empty wine glasses strewn about. <laughs> right. Right. And so like that moment, I think you could say is parallel, but the sense is that it's extremely temporal. Like it only exists in the moment. Once it's dissipated, that energy is extremely condensed. And once it's spent, it's gone. What mm. it leaves behind is essentially up to the individual to interpret, but it's not a replacement for something like moral panic or moral outrage. It may help to cultivate it, but it's not a swap in for that term. I mean, I guess it's just like a driver of it. It's a kind of propellant, a moral panic type of formation. I, I almost would think of it though as like some kind of MK Ultra type imprinting moment mm. when you would think about them trying to uh, formalize or figure out a way to brainwash people. You'd get them in a state of sleeplessness where you could imprint new beliefs mm -hmm. into them, right? Yeah. But the parareal to me seems like a moment where you're maybe a little bit dissociated. You're in line as... Kate writes, like, the atoms of the organic world and the digital world are perfectly synced. Mm. You've sort of forgotten about the material you and material reality. And this can just happen through text, but you are in a sort of state of suspension where you are in line with the digital space. And that's like a moment where imprinting, I think, actually can occur. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, what you absolutely. see. I've been calling absolutely. it cognitive man in the middle attacks, but you see that happening like right with the Balenciaga example where somebody sees the photo in the context of child abuse and suddenly brand new wine glasses in neat rows along with other homeware goods are become empty wine glasses right. strewn Sinister about imagery, the, uh, yep. yeah, right, the, the right, child. Right. But I think that the point here is what you've just described there is precisely the difference, right? Which is that like the power wheel can be harnessed in very specific ways, but it's, I think, really important to separate it as a space. Historically, for example, there's been a lot of fetishization of tech looking at the protocol or the platform as like the space where we can politically intervene. But both of those have limitations because they have both electronic or digital limitations in what they can accomplish. And they also have physical limitations. They're bound by the servers they run on, by the economic structures they exist within, et cetera. The parareal is a space that for very brief moments of time transcends all of those limitations. And you can call it uh, religious, you can call it 
a hallucination, you can call it an ascension. There's all sorts of words that you can, it's like very personal and it's important that like the parareal has a personal component to it. It's only interpretable through the individual. But what happens within that is separate to the parareal itself, mm. right? It's a venue. It's like ASMR for the rest of your senses. Mm. <laughs> and whatever happens within that space, sometimes they can be really transformative and empowering and sometimes they can be extremely disruptive and negative. I think that's really helpful clarification. You've written a lot about gaming as well. And in your piece, you make a distinction between the experience one has when you're in any kind of intense gaming experience. How is the parareal different from the general experience one would have in like a durational game? So once again, the parareal can exist. It can come at any point, really. Mm -hmm. But when there's layers of complexity, and especially when you expose the social, there is more components there to be used that can cultivate a parareal experience. But I mean, you can have, I mean, there's well-documented examples of people playing The Sims 1 and getting hooked on it and having a parareal experience mm. from just getting too engaged with their Sims, right? Like that's mm. a single player example from like the late 90s, early thousands. But like the kind of Call of Duty style, I mean, Call of Duty's big in the news right now because of the merger between Activision Blizzard and Microsoft. Call of Duty is a great example of something that is a game or metaverse, if you want. It's completely immersive, but it also is less likely than other gaming properties to cultivate the parareal because of its nature, which is essentially extremely repetitive shooting game. I mean, I play a lot of Counter-Strike and I love watching it in like the, the gaming league stuff, like the esports, Counter-Strike, ESL. These things can be amazing and still be less likely to produce a parareal experience. And it comes down to things like the tightness of mechanics, the sociality of it, like how much complexity is in these spaces. But again, like the whole state of esports exists because of the parareal. And mm. what, what, I, what I mean by that is every single major esports game, Dota, Counter-Strike, League, these sorts of games, all of them come from people who were obsessed with the previous generations of games and built mods, which then blossomed into the biggest, most successful esports games. And so in that moment, when these mod designers had this resonance with these game engines and then decided to obsessively build something from that, that sort of transcendence where their lives turned as a result of that exposure to the intellectual property or the game engine, that is an example of the power of real in action. And mm -hmm. so that like those driving forces that force people with zero resources to play with the mechanics and to build something new, that's an example of the power real in action. But generally speaking, when you say complexity, you mean it extends beyond gaming parameters into some social dynamic. There's some sense of an economy. And actually, I'm curious about that, how economies work in the power real. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the point I think is that like, it's not to say that a game like Call of Duty is impossible to have like a parallel experience with. And it's interesting you bring up game economies because this is a really important point, I think. The level of participation that one has to shape that economy, that feedback loop that's created in that game mechanic is what is more likely to bring about a parallel experience. You have to input something and have something come back, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, one of the core mechanics of the parareal is that you inject something of yourself into this digital space and something comes back mm. that is recognizably you, but also not you at the same time, mm. right? This is the difference between Fortnite skins and Second Life and like Linden dollars, right? Which is that like, even though both of these things have like a token and both of these systems have like an economy and they've both been written about and they're both super important to their platforms, you are less likely to have a parareal experience with 
fortnight because the economy is one way, because mm. you have no direct input into the economy system and in the, the complexity and the mechanics that control that economy versus Second Life or WoW or Elite Dangerous or any of these other games, Final Fantasy, these MMOs that give you that level of complexity and the ability to sort of influence the economy based on your own understandings of it. That then leads to an output that you that has some semblance of you within that, which then mm. triggers the power reel. So social media also has an economy like that. And so social media, like Web2 social yeah. media, also can produce the this parawheel effect. Yeah, absolutely. What I don't want to do in never speaking about this is to try to anticipate ways in which the parawheel has led to X or Y, right? Because sure. if the parawheel is such a personal experience, it's really hard to tell when someone has had a parawheel experience or not and like where it exists in those spaces. But, you know, two parallel examples, one in like a more immersive space, and one in a more traditional social media space would be the cracking of trans identity. So people interacting with content that helps them question their identity and beginning a journey there. So one of them would be like the subreddits that are dedicated to trans memes, like trans and other spaces. And those moments where one is like looking at memes and then there's one that just hits right and then there's an entire world that opens up, that would be an example. And then the corresponding example in a more immersive environment, and I write about this in the manifesto, would be a male-identified VR chat player donning a female presenting avatar and then looking at themselves in a VR chat mirror and then suddenly questioning their identity, which I've actually seen myself. I've actually had a close friend do that. I've seen that unfold in real time. Hmm. And it's it's a well-documented... I mean, the idea of the trans identity and exploration of identity through virtual reality has been written about extensively, mm -hmm. uh, including in, like, psychology papers. So it's not, like, a new thing. But I'm using these two examples because what I'm trying to do is, is illustrate how much more likely it is to happen. In the case of, like, the Reddit example where you've got meme after meme, infinite scrolling meme, eventually something might come across your screen that hits right and unlocks the parallel moment. Like what mm. you do with that after that is up to you. But in the sense of something like VRChat, the infinite scrolling is replaced by your avatar basically being mapped to you. Basically, you have a moment where you are yourself and you see yourself in the digital sense. And so that's why I think these emerging platforms why they are more likely to create the parareal moment because mm. they're mapped a little bit closer to you. And it tracks, I think, with the trajectory of digitized society as that becomes more entangled with you as a person, whether it's you using your phone for five hours a day or whether it's you in VR, like mapping yourself and seeing yourself move one-to-one -one with how you think that you move in real life. That trajectory and fidelity leads to a higher and higher chance of the parareal happening. Does that make sense? Trying to like so. answer two yeah. questions. Yeah. This took two years to write, by the way. This took a long time to get this out. I wanted to ask you about a few lines uh, at the last paragraph of the manifesto. You wrote, we must understand the parareal as the only tried and tested means to widening the horizon, to shatter the Overton window. The politics of gender, sexuality, digital security, possibility, economy, ecology, and ownership all apply here, drawn from the politics and beliefs of the parareal flashpoints created by accident, like a series of haphazard demolitions. First of all, I think this is a really astute observation. I think a lot of the widening of the or shattering of the Overton window we've seen has occurred based on these parareal experiences or has been pushed forward through these parareal experiences. Uh, and then also, I think the recent, recent meaning the past decade politics of 
gender and sexuality, I think few would argue that the internet made these scale. A lot of the primacy of language around these ideas came out of parareal experiences. Of course, we're seeing conflict in the regular old offline world around what seems to be ideologies coming from the online or people who have these parareal experiences when it's attempted to port them over into the legacy real government world. And also, I mean, what we're facing existentially right now are material problems. Uh-huh. They aren't parareal mm. problems. Right. Like the the uh-huh. death of the planet and mass extinction is not a parareal problem. Energy That's crisis. a material problem. Right. So I wanted to ask you if there should be maintained a parareal dualism of the parareal not quite being compatible with reality? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And there's two answers that come to mind. The first is that the parallel is one of, I think, many ways in which people have these transcendent moments. In the 20th century in particular, I'm speaking, again, from material that I've read and my own experiences, but like the queer club of the 20th century is an example of like a transcendence. The idea of even that earlier generations of queer people had safe spaces in which they could be themselves is a transformative experience that I think would share some of the qualities, even though it's very different, because what they both offer is like the ability to step above the material structure that one exists within. Um, but I also think that the the parareal itself, again, it, the, the reason it's a political tool is because of what it can offer. In those moments, you can communicate all sorts of things. You know, people... Who, who find themselves in a parallel space with a voice talking to them or within a community that's supporting them. And so I think like there's a mistake here, which is that we talk a lot about the idea of solutions to a lot of the problems of technology, for example, as being fetishized within two different spaces. We're gonna save the economies, we're gonna bring democratization back through the deployment of blockchains or the digital space is about privacy or these sorts of things that, that really have shrunk the discussion points. In the piece itself, I talk about how, you know, popular crit couldn't even think of the death of Facebook, let alone the death of capitalism. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think it's more important at this very point in time is because of how much time we're all spending online and how much that has narrowed our ability to think about alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so my point isn't to say that the parareal is the only space that matters, but rather in digitized societies that are saturated with perspectives that have been like shaped and homed and narrowed by interfaces. The parareal is a tool that could be used or a space that breaks out from that in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important when we then zoom out and look at the broader material problems we have because, you know, we all live in this kind of Fukuyama, like, end of history thinking, even though it's wrong and, you know, even though we might know that it's wrong, we're still narrowed by, like, the repetition of what's possible that's been delivered to us through these historical interfaces. And Mm -hmm. so because so much of our thinking is done collectively online and through digital systems, it's really important that we know what the parareal is and we Mm. understand it because it's one of the only tools we have to break out of that narrow thinking. So what are some of the more hopeful instances of the parareal that you've come across writing this piece or that you've experienced personally? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the parareal starts really as a concept. Back when I did the Sim Society piece at Trauma Bar with you, 
the our artificial wilderness. And I, I wrote in that piece about feeling like climate grief while playing beautiful open world games, right? And that to me was like a perfect example of the parareal, like this mm. impossible, um, which still, even as I'm talking to you now, makes me tear up. Like it's an impossible feeling. And then as the pandemic hit, there were huge cohorts of creative people of, of different sectors of society that were sliding backwards as a result of the pandemic. In some countries, also austerity. Uh, in some countries, extractivism through platforms, basically just sliding backwards. And then there were comparable groups that were like succeeding or holding ground as a collective in, in the sense of like economic stability or economic solidarity. And that got me thinking about like the kind of economics of the furry fandom as a post-capitalist way of understanding the world. And so that then got me to thinking, okay, so what are they doing differently? And then once you start to realize that there's a transformative moment similar to the clubs of the 20th century in which queer people enter into the furry fandom through moments of the parareal, that combined with the sort of rise of QAnon in the era of the pandemic and watching previously conservative maybe, but normal people, but then also all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds going off the deep end. That is an example too, and I write about this in the piece as well, of people being caught up in the moment of investigation, frantic investigation as a form of being in the grips of the parareal. Mm -hmm. But in the more optimistic sense, yeah, I think that like the queer movements that exist through the parareal, harnessed it subconsciously, are an amazing example because they offer examples of uh, technology criticism, of economic solidarity, of modes of economies that exist outside of these systems. I think the world in which people dive into game engines as teenagers, the moment where you produce something beautiful with a game engine, I think that's probably a moment where you have a transformative like, oh wow, like the idea that you put something into a game system and something quite beautiful has come out would be an example of that too in certain circumstances. Yeah, I think those are interesting examples. But I think the queer and the trans movements um, that have emerged, especially during the deeply online phase that we've entered the 2020s into, are like they offer a huge amount of opinion that I think is really useful for understanding what the future could be. Hmm. And I think that partially is down to moments of the parareal, absolutely. I... I, I don't I, I don't want to share all of my feelings on how the I don't know past few years of identity based I I don't know how to really talk about this. One thing I will say I I can see the extremely hopeful potential and the power of the parareal and what I'm perhaps wondering and maybe it's a good analogy is when people talk about having an intense psychedelic experience of course the research around psychedelics in a medical context for healing depression things like this there's always a lot of talk about integration after mm. the experience integration meaning effectively taking what you learned the insights you received from that psychedelic experience and integrating them with your real day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if essentially the parareal, once there's integration, has been refined or perfected a little more, or when people start to understand better how to integrate the politics and ideas and new potentialities you're talking about that have been developed in these sort of parareal spaces, with better integration, I could see it as being a really, really extremely powerful tool. And I wonder if maybe integration is the one thing that's missing a bit right now and that the future needs to work on or pay more attention to, to leverage the real power of this. Right, and I think, I think this is, it's so good that you said that because like that's exactly my critique of more broadly the fetishization that we've had collectively of things like protocols and platforms. 
I mean, just to bring this to what we've sort of talked about here, the collective horror that the average Twitter person had in the moments of Musk's purchase of Twitter in that particular moment is an example where a normal sort of average user has to grapple with the idea of a platform being untrustworthy for the, maybe for the first time in their lives, right? And that moment is like Twitter reaching out of the phone and sort of threatening hmm. the user, threatening the Twitter user, right? And that's a power real moment. It might not last very long, but you know what that led to is this weird exodus to Mastodon or to other platforms. And so what you have is this like stunted discussion over which platform is better. Is it Mastodon? Is it Post? Is it Hive? Is it like which one of these like 20 other platforms are the ones that we're going to use, you know, once Twitter dies. And what's missing from that is the deeper reflection over what we've felt collectively in that moment, right? Which is like the intense horror of being betrayed by a a digital system, right? Mm. And not just the ways in which that affects you both in terms of your communication or your organizing. Black Twitter, for example, has a lot to say about like the sort of fears and the, the ways in which they've been smashed by Musk's purchase of Twitter. But then, you know, the discourse should be around that more broadly, rather than it being 90% people asking which platform are you backing? Which mm. one do you think is going to be the next Twitter, that's right? That's a great point. And that's an, a crystallized example of how far we have to go to get to this point. Whereas like that moment of collective horror, it should have been the start of a larger discussion about the role of something like Twitter or a digital system like this in our lives, rather than turning into either a competition about platforms or fetishization of protocols in the case of the Fediverse decentralized space, mm-hmm. where all they can talk about is how inclusive they are, even when Black Twitter moved over to Mastodon and then would write pieces about how threatened they feel there. Mm. There's a really great piece that floated around that maybe we can put in the Discord. But the number of people who read that in the Fediverse and like the Fediverse reply guy is like a guy who gets in your mentions and is like, oh no, but we run a really nice instance that's like heavily moderated <laughs> oh and it's really small. And that's the Fediverse reply guy. And right. it's like the same like nonsense and all of this energy is spent on like replacing something that sucked and had like a huge economic and social cost rather than like leveraging that moment for a deeper discussion that ties into what you were saying Julian about like we have to figure out a way of harnessing this. I mean one thing I like is that your conception of the parareal is platform agnostic and it's going to be applicable 100 years from now as it was as you said already in the 90s but one thing I hear in this great point that you made is that if I understand your thesis, the parareal has been with us for a long time, but it's only with this exponential availability of digital experiences that the parareal starts to have more contiguous land. It used to be an island here, an island there, and now there's land bridges. I mean, the original conception of the metaverse has these various digital spaces that are somehow interconnected at least like uh, socio-geographically or psychogeographically in our mind, that's now happened. That then has allowed us to feel these pain points. We're cathected to the digital space in different ways. And when we feel that, you know, the space of the parareal, that's only when we have the capacity to feel loss or fear or to feel extreme joy. And so we are now through that heightened emotional relationship, able to look more holistically at platforms at their effect on us. Understanding the larger role that they play in, I hope I'm not sounding like I'm being too abstract here, but there's, no, I, there's like, it, do you know what I'm getting at? I do, I do. That's a really good point too. And I actually have a theory that the complexity of digital systems is part of why we exist in a paralysis. I I wonder how much labor that has gone into open source and into big platforms 
how much of that has just been burned to stop any kind of political organizing? This idea of what would have happened in the last 20 years if we didn't have complex digital systems that required hundreds and hundreds of people to dedicate more than full-time work in order to keep them running, whether it was an individual piece, like individual work maintaining a piece of open source software or like a giant company. Mm. You know, Meta laid off 11,000 people. 11,000 people. That's like... Absurd, right? And Twitter, 5,000. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the soaking up of labor that's involved in that, and then there's a secondary issue, which is that when you work in a digital system, the layers of abstraction make you anesthetized to the output, right? Right. Like you can deploy complexity to separate the laborer from the second and third order consequences of their labor, right? And so you end up in this situation where like, yeah, as you said, like we've had this mystification there's been a push since John Parry Barlow, even before that, there's been a push by proponents of digital systems towards this being like a liberatory force and then backed up by like a soaking up of potentially political labor, which has basically only recently begun to crack. And I think the layoffs in Silicon Valley and around the world in tech might actually, you know, this is different to the financial crisis of 2008, right? Like there's a lot more going on in terms of existential threats. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this mystifying nature of tech, that's super important of understanding how much that has helped us to not see things like the power reel right. and to sort of see tech with one kind of lens. I hope I answered, I maybe didn't answer your no, question. No, I think, I think that added some really nice dimension to it. In any case, um, we're very much looking forward to where you take this line of thinking. I feel like the concept of the power reel is one that will continue, I know, to use and to refine in our own minds and can imagine there's some interesting discourse that can come downstream from this. It's also amazing that it's a term once you actually hear it and understand what it is, you start to recognize having experienced it and of yeah. course, you open yeah. with a quote from Serial Experiments yeah. Lane, I believe. And it's uh, really interesting that Lane has had this big resurgence uh, over the past few years. And they were all on the wired. Yeah. And it, uh, I think, of course, that was an anime series that really was all about this blurring between the online and the real. And I think yes. probably the reason why so many people have been lane pilled over the past years is because. We, even if they didn't have a word for it or a definition, they felt themselves spending more time or experiencing many more parareal moments than before. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, Cade, thank you for speaking with us tonight. It's a nice conversation to have when we're in this time of total darkness, which feels something like being like in some <laughs> kind of parareal, even in the IRL. Well, make sure to read the parareal a manifesto. It's published on Yes, it's on newdesigncongress.org. We'll link to it. And uh, if you're in the Discord, you know how to reach Cade. Well, signing off for now, Cade, thank you. And we'll catch you in the Discord. Have a I'm wonderful sure. holidays <laughs> and a very happy new year. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. See you on League of Legends. All right. Ciao. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Models. And thank you, Cade Diem, for joining us. You can find Cade's work at newdesigncongress.org. As we lower our digital bandwidth and dial into the family zone over the next week or two, we just wanted to say a sincere thank you to everyone who is and has been a part of New Models. Because of your belief in this channel and its community, New Models has been able to explore complicated questions before any market has existed for the corresponding answers. 
and we've been able to experiment with our content in ways that legacy publications can't sustain. As we see the disillusion of major media outlets, from Vice's impending insolvency, to the closing of Book Forum and the sale of Art Forum to Penske Media, as well as the churn of independent podcasts and newsletters, we recognize that we have something really special and rare in what we've built. And we feel incredibly lucky that, thanks to you, we're about to enter our fifth year of this ongoing experiment. New models wouldn't exist without you, and all of the long hours and care we put into it are expressions of our gratitude. So, thank you. And with that speech, we hope you have a great holidays wherever on or off the grid you may be. On our side, we've been taking notes over our short stay in NYC and during our longer stay in the old Bay Area around the Chesapeake. And we'll be sharing them with you in the new year. Shout out to all the NM gang we saw and met in NYC. Davidi, Bradley, Kevin Munger, Dean Kissick, and Olivia, Joshua Citarella and Rachel Rossin, Dina Yago, Matthew Donovan, Ian at Blade Study, John Kelsey at Rena Spallings, a guy named Theo on the street in Dime Square, and a thank you to Montez Press Radio and Club Cringe for the ice skating party, Spicy Village for providing half of everything we ate, and we're sorry we missed you, Natasha Stag, and everyone else, we will be back. That's all for now. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and hope you have a very real new year. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.